It's a beautiful thing for Jesus' church to pray. Just like He taught us, right? Not my will, but Yours be done, Father. And so, we've, we've been praying, and let's continue in that spirit of prayer just, just one more time, simply as we approach God's Word. Lord, we come with, before You now with our heads and our hearts bowed, and we plead with You to have Your way in our lives. Lord, forgive us for all of the ways in which we have clamored for our own will, for our own glory. And Lord, we ask here and now that You would just strike us to the heart with the glory of Jesus as we uh, behold His Gospel, as we read from the Gospel of Luke and, and are laid bare by the power and the beauty of Christ and His mission and His salvation. Lord, may Your people give glory to You. Would You guard us now from error and would You guide us in Your truth? We pray all these things by the power of Your matchless Spirit and in the name of Your Son, Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen. Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 5. We have been working our way together through Luke's glorious gospel, and we are about to see today how Jesus is better and stronger. You say, okay, Zeb, better, better and stronger than what? Well, Yes, He is our highest good and the strongest power. Pick your thing. He's better and He's stronger. And the testimony of this passage, this Scripture passage from Luke chapter 5 that we're about to dive into here this morning extols the superlative worth of Christ. It shows us in neon letters that He is indeed better than anything the world has to offer, such that at the end of this account, people will be walking away from everything that they're aligned with to follow Him. It shows us that He's stronger than the most out-of-our-control diseases. He's sovereign over all. Let's read together. Luke chapter 5, we're beginning in verse 1, and if you're using our church Bible, you can find this passage on page 808. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners on the other boat to come and help them. And, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. 
And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will. You can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed from their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Well, we'll stop there this morning. I think it's important as we begin working our way through this passage together to remember that we're not picking up this account cold here in chapter 5. Luke tells us right out of the chute in chapter 1 at the beginning of his gospel narrative that he's writing an orderly account. He's writing an orderly gospel for the purpose of certainty. That you may have certainty, he writes, about the life and, and the ministry of Jesus. And, and so, so Luke is doing something purposeful. And he's, he's being orderly in the way that he's selecting this information about Jesus' life and ministry. And, and I want you to see here, Luke has just finished telling us a few verses ago, if you look back in chapter 4, that the people, upon hearing the teaching of Jesus, were astonished. Verse 32 of chapter 4. They were astonished because the words of the God-man, this Word made flesh, carry unparalleled authority. So we shouldn't be surprised then when we read in verse 1 of chapter 5 that the crowd was pressing in on Him to hear Him teach. Now, notice how Jesus' words are being described here. Look carefully at verse 1 with me. What are the people pressing in to hear? Ah, not just the Word. Not just Jesus' speech. They're pressing in to hear the Word of God. That's because, friends, when Jesus speaks, He's not merely speaking about God. He is speaking as God. Jesus speaks and God speaks. Now, all this is going down, as we can see, at a little geographical place marker, at the shores of the lake of Gennesaret, which is not a new place. It's just one of the several names we encounter in the New Testament for the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Tiberias, the Lake of Gennesaret, all all the same place. It's there in the northern portion of Israel where Jesus has centered most of His earthly ministry. And we read that there's two fishing boats there near the shore, and their crews, which had been out all night fishing, are washing their nets there by the shore. And, and, and the pressure of the crowd is great upon Jesus. 
So Jesus gets into one of those boats, which just so happens to belong to Simon Peter. And you'll have to forgive me, I'm, I'm probably going to say Peter uh, throughout most of the time that we're teaching together, although he's identified as Simon here, same guy, Simon. Uh, Jesus will give him his nickname later, Peter, uh, same guy. Anyway, he, he hops into Simon Peter's boat and begins to teach to those on shore. Brilliant idea, isn't it? Didn't really have anywhere to go. And, and we get it wax eloquent on the acoustics of, uh, of why and how Jesus uh, made that decision. That doesn't appear to be Luke's point, so we'll move on here. But, but as we do, I don't want you to lose track of this second boat. We're going to see that come into play here in a little bit. But for now, let's stay focused on the main action. And, and I'd like us, if we could, just to, just to try as best we can to wrap our minds around what actually happened. And then we'll work our way back and draw some observations about what it all means. So, um, so I'm going to read the crux of this account here in verses 4 to 7 one more time, uh, and, and then we'll just gawk at how good Jesus is together. Verse, verse 4 of chapter 5, and when he had finished speaking, so Jesus wraps up his teaching there on the boat, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night. And took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, this is amazing. And it all starts with a seemingly preposterous suggestion. Remember now, Peter is a professional fisherman. He does this for a living. I mean, Peter knows this lake surely like the back of his hand. And he knows that this is the wrong place and the wrong time to be catching these, these kind of fish. Let's not forget also that Peter has got to be exhausted. He's been out all night. I mean, he's got an intimate knowledge of the lake and the fish and their timing and their patterns, and he hadn't caught a blessed thing. You know, it's bad enough. Some of us feel this pain. It's bad enough when you get skunked when you're fishing. I've been there before, just even very recently. Some of you, are, some of you feel my pain. But you know what's worse than getting skunked when you're fishing? When your livelihood depends on you catching fish. Friends, this has been a rough night for Peter. Then Jesus, you know, the, the carpenter's son, at least by trade, says to Peter, the professional fisherman, hey, I've got an idea. Put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Question, does anything about this makes sense to Peter. No. Not a lick of this makes sense to Peter. I mean, think about it. Matt Adamson. I was thinking about him this week. Matt works on the chocolate machine at Cirrus Candies. What would happen if I were just to waltz behind the counter at Cirrus and presume to start barking orders at Matt about how he should be making that chocolate? Well, you wouldn't want to buy any Cirrus Easter candy. I can assure you that. 
What would happen if, uh, if Bob, say, who's always uh, faithfully serving up in our, our tech ministry, uh, who, who is an electrical estimator uh, bidding out huge commercial electrical jobs, what, what if I were to waltz on one of those scenes and just start uh, giving him some tips on how he should be bidding out these, electri- uh, these electrical jobs? What if, I saw Valerie earlier teaching Sunday school, what if I went down to PNC Bank and presumed to tell... I'm not going to try it. Valerie's too smart. I don't even know what she does there for them. But you get my point, right? I mean, surely if, if I were to step into your world, untrained, not really sure what you do or how you pull it off, and, and, and presume to give you very specific directions, which actually were contrary to what you knew to be effective, what would you say? Well, you'd say, thanks for... But no thanks, Zeb. You see, you've got no idea what you're talking about around here. And you would be absolutely true. But this is Jesus. And remember, Peter had just witnessed Jesus, last chapter, heal his mother-in-law. She goes from fever to fine in an instant. Peter had just watched Jesus healing the sick and casting out demons, listening to them as they shrieked, you are the Son of God. He had witnessed the unparalleled authority of his teaching. Peter knew that this man's commands were different than any other man. And look at the result here. I love this. This is just... This is so fun. The, the nets, verse 6, the nets, which I'll point out, were specifically designed for catching fish now. Those nets are breaking. Reminds me how uh, uh, our kiddos love to uh, get those little butterfly nets. You see those things? You can catch little insects and other things. Uh, well, well What's way more fun than catching butterflies is like, you know, going out to the creek here and catching frogs and, and minnows. And, and so our kids get those nets, and like in a matter of two days, they're, they're just shredded and broken. Why? Well, because butterfly nets don't hold up to frog catching. But these aren't butterfly nets, these are fishing nets. These are made to do this, and they're tearing. Under the weight of this momentous catch. And, and so Peter doesn't know what to do. He starts signaling uh, to the other boat. Remember that second boat? Which just so happens to belong to James and John. Maybe you'll uh, remember the sons of thunder. We'll, we'll read all about them here as we continue through the book of Luke together. Peter's fishing partners. That's who James and John were. And there's, there's so many fish that both of the boats, again, the boats that were designed for fishing, are sinking beneath the weight of the catch. This is awesome. And Peter knows that there is no other explanation. This is none other than the hand of God. But before we get to his response to this amazing miracle... And this amazing Savior. Let's look at the the biblical principle. I think we can see uh, very squarely a simple but important biblical principle for us to just camp out on for a minute. And then we'll drill down a bit deeper from there. Look at verse 5. Peter's response to Jesus' command. He says, first, Master, we toiled all night. We didn't catch a thing. We took nothing. Translation, Jesus, 
this doesn't make sense. I wonder actually what was going on, the commentary behind Peter's statement. You know, Lord, this is how I feed my family. I do this all the time. And what you're asking me to do just didn't how it works. Didn't make sense. And yet, even though Peter didn't understand, Peter obeyed the voice of the Lord. That's what's going on here. If I can just crunch it down into a simple, pithy statement, what we have here is obedience before understanding. And now what's happening? Obedience before understanding. And that's what happens when lordship is in play. I can tell you to do something and be just off the wall. You should probably not listen to that. But when you're talking to the eternal Son of God, who is speaking as God and demonstrating through His words and deeds that He is indeed the Messiah. Even when He asks us to do something that just breaks our categories. Obedience sometimes comes before understanding, or it needs to. We see this principle elsewhere in Scripture, and, and I like to point out this verse from time to time. The very first verse I ever memorized as a young boy, before I was even a Christian, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Some of you know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't do what? That's right. Lean not on your own understanding. I love that visual picture, right? You just picture yourself just putting your weight on your own understanding. And that's what we tend to do, don't we? As people, no matter who you are or how you're wired, you tend to operate within your own sphere of comfort and and according to your own understanding about life and how it works. But God says, your understanding is okay, but as a follower of Yahweh, the one true God, that's not where your leaning should be. That's not where your weight should be. Lean not upon your own understanding. Rather, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. We see this principle throughout the Bible, and and this is the broader principle that Peter is demonstrating here. He understands these words come at a higher authority. And so, even though he doesn't understand a possible world in which this is going to work out well for him, he says, all right, obedience before understanding. Now, let's, let's peel it back one more layer. Let's drill down just a little bit deeper. Question. Looking at verse 5 with me here. Chapter 5, verse 5. What was the thing that specifically prompted Peter's obedience? He tells us, Master, I, I, we already tried this. This isn't making any sense. But he reveals the impetus for his obedience here. What was it? He says, at your word, verse 5. That's what makes the difference. At your word. Question, you know what else happened at the word of the Lord? everything (laughs) like all the things so so the light shining on the lake that morning on the sea of galilee was there because the lord had said let there be light and the very water that they're sailing on 
is there because the Lord had spoken it into existence. For crying out loud, these are Jesus' fish. He made them. And they do His bidding. It's funny to me that the same fish that had spent all night avoiding Peter's nets, now all of a sudden at the, at the word of the Lord come rushing from every corner of the lake to fill up that net. As if the fish, if they could talk, would just be saying, Jesus is Lord as they rush to their death. You think this has any application for us? <laughs> of course it does. Do we have the Word of the Lord? Is there, is there ever a point in our Christian walk where, where we can, where we must say also, at Your Word, Lord, I will obey. Now, I'm not going to try to slip into your shoes. I'll let you do the application work. But think about those things in your life, perhaps those things which don't make a whole lot of sense to you right now. Those things which maybe aren't altogether convenient. Here's one. How about this? Lord, I'm tired. So I, I can't give myself to this, so I, you know, the excuse to start to go. Peter was out fishing all night. He's washing his nets, they're clean. Jesus says, go out again. He's tired. Even when we can't see how this thing would possibly work out for God's good, we as followers of Jesus too, who have the Word of God, what a treasure, we must say, like Peter, obedience before understanding, at Your Word, Lord, I'm going to obey though I don't feel like it, though I'm tired, though I'm confused, though I'm... Though I'm just worn out. At your word, I will obey. All right, let's pick it up in verse 8. We see Peter's immediate response. He says to Jesus, I, I like how it says it, he fell at his knees, and I, I don't know for sure the text doesn't say, but you'd imagine there's fish flopping all over him as he's down there uh, on his knees there in the boat. He says, depart from me. Lord, I'm a sinner. Note here how Peter's response is very appropriate, I think. It, it actually mirrors Isaiah's response. If you remember that climactic moment in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 6, when Isaiah sees a vision of the heavenly throne room and, and the train of the Lord uh, fills the temple. And Isaiah, confronted with the holiness of God and his own sinfulness, says what? Woe is me, I'm undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. That's what Peter's saying. He sees Jesus here in the boat. He sees undeniably God at work, and he says, I am unworthy. I'm a, I'm, I'm a sinner. I mean... Forget ever being used by the Lord. In, in view of his own sinfulness here, Peter's convinced he can't even be in his presence. He's disqualified for Jesus to even be there in his boat. <laughs> you see the grace of our King? You see Jesus here? 
far from repelling us away from Him like a dirty cloth, He would have every right to do that. That would be just. Jesus extends grace and mercy. He draws us near. He effectively says to Peter here, not only can you stay in My presence, Peter, but I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you in mighty ways to accomplish My work. And again, we see this, not just for Peter, This truth isn't for Peter only, it's for us. Remember that passage in Ephesians chapter 2? Try to put it up here on the screen. If you you can't quite read it because there's a lot of words there, just just listen as I read and maybe jot down the reference. Some of you may even have committed this one to memory. Look Look at the unworthiness coupled with God's grace and and what he does with us despite. Nothing from our own goodness being at play here. Let's just, just, just read it. Ephesians 2, 8-10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. In other words, this has got nothing to do with you. Your, your salvation has nothing to do with your own worthiness. You didn't work for it. It wasn't because you were smart. It wasn't because you were holy that you're saved. It's by grace God gave you a free gift. You were unworthy to receive it. But after, after grappling with that, Paul says, led by the Holy Spirit, for we are His workmanship. We're not worthy vessels, but because of His kindness and grace not only does he save us he he makes us his masterpieces his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them peter understands this is a this is a right impulse standing before the second person of the trinity the eternal son of the triune godhead he says i i can't Leave, Jesus. And Jesus flips the script, doesn't he? It's very interesting to note, if you look at verse 10, Jesus responds back to Peter. He says first, don't be afraid, Peter. God often needs to say that to his servants as their knees are knocking before his glory. Don't be afraid. And then he says this, from now on, Peter, many of you know this famous line, from now on, Peter, you're going to be catching men. It's beautiful, isn't it? Now, it's worth, I think, drawing your attention to that phrase, catching men. In, in the original language of the New Testament, in the, the Greek language, that phrase means to catch or to capture alive. Not just to catch or capture, but to catch or to capture alive, as in to rescue something from danger, which is not typically what you do when you fish, is it? I like how one uh, faithful biblical commentator, Philip Ryken, puts it in the Reformed Expository Commentary. I'm just going to read this to you. I think it's brilliant. He, he writes, this is not what most fishermen have in mind. When a fisherman catches fish, he's usually hoping to eat them, not save them. But Jesus was calling Peter to be a new kind of fisherman. One who rescued people from the deep sea of their sin and brought them safely to the shore of salvation. You might call this, Riken continues, catch and release. Because people who get caught by the Gospel are released 
from their sins. Isn't that good? I never knew that. Jesus is into catch and release. Catching us from the sewage of our sins and releasing us into the river of life. Now, Jesus' grace, Jesus' kindness is so good that He reverts Peter's leaving impulse. I want you to see this here. Verse 8, Peter's, Peter's leaving impulse, away from me, Lord, is redirected by the grace of Jesus. We just, we just saw his impulse, depart from me, Lord. And yet, after Jesus' statement, after Jesus' grace is extended, what happens at the end of the passage? Well, there's some leaving happening. But it's not the kind of leaving that Peter had envisioned, is it? Peter thought the leaving needed to be him away from the presence of Jesus. And by the time Jesus is done with them in this account, what's being left? Well, Peter's doing the leaving. Peter and James and John, they're leaving everything behind them to follow Jesus. Isn't that crazy? By the way, who does this? I mean, who, who wins the lottery and then walks away without cashing in the ticket? I mean, this was the biggest catch of fish Peter had ever come upon. He was never going to... This was his livelihood. He was never going to cash in like this again. Think of the amount of money. Think of the way that this translated to him in terms of provision. And yet... He walks away and leaves the check uncashed. Peter, James, John are so undone, so overwhelmed by who Jesus is that they leave behind them commitments. They leave the fish right there in the boat. Biggest catch they've ever seen. What would possess you to do that? Well, it's actually pretty simple. It's pretty... uh, pretty straightforward when you understand that the thing in front of you no matter how valuable is but petty change compared to the thing that you're pursuing you don't think another thing about it do you you gave me a choice a thousand dollars that's a good choice or a billion dollars i'll walk away from that thousand dollars real fast you see? With all this miraculous catch, with all their, their former commitments with their business. You read elsewhere in the Gospels. James and John leave their dad, Zebedee, in the boat. I, I wonder how that conversation went down. I'm sure not everybody was entirely pleased. Here's the bottom line. In view of who Jesus is and what He's done, God's people joyfully jettison anything that's standing in the way of them following Him. The bottom line is this, and I think we just ought to, we would just say this together. Jesus is better. Can you say that? Jesus is better. That's that's what's happening here. That's the takeaway from this miraculous catch of fish. 
No matter what's been provided, Jesus wasn't playing magician. Jesus was after their hearts. And so they walk away gladly because they understand the value of who Christ is and what He's calling them to do is far, far better than continuing in their fishing trade. All right, let's, uh, let's roll. we got one more brief account uh, to work our way through. Not only do we see that Jesus is better, we're about to see that Jesus is stronger here uh, than the, this leprosy, this death sentence, if you will, in the first century. And uh, we see that through verses 12 to 16. We'll, we'll uh, move through this at a little bit of a quicker pace. We're not going to have the opportunity to highlight everything, but let's just take it uh, from, a, from a macro perspective here. I think the first thing that we should note in verses 12 to 16 is, <laughs> again, Dr. Luke can't help himself. We see the doctor once again drawing our attention to the grave seriousness of the physical condition that's at play here. He tells us, filled by the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, to, 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 to see it's not just that this guy has leprosy. Look at, look at the first verse here, verse 12. It's not just that he has leprosy. He is full of leprosy. Now, it's unlikely that you're feeling this in your chest right now. Because it's unlikely that you have a category for, for leprosy as it, as it would have existed then. I mean, it's not like you've seen a, a leper, I'm guessing not, walking around the Washington Walmart. If you did, that would be a very bad thing for that leper to be doing. And, um, I don't know, at the, uh, at the expense of, um, you know, helping us to undersee and then like show visual pictures so that you understand exactly what's at play. I think more important than a medical diagnosis is, is helping us to understand what this disease was at the time. And I think uh, there, there's a man who has described it quite accurately, another respected biblical theologian from Australia named Leon Morris. Now, Leon Morris also has the high distinction as being born in Wales, uh, which I thought was uh, has nothing to do with the sermon, but uh, important to point out because us Welshmen need to stick together. And I'm sad that Doc isn't here today because he's, he takes a lot of pride in being Welsh. Uh, anyway, um, leprosy, Leon Morris writes this, leprosy in biblical times was the name given to a variety of diseases, and in its worst form, it was a dreadful disease. It was both disfiguring and fatal. And the ancient world's only defense against it was quarantine. Sufferers were forbidden to approach other people and to prevent contact, they were required to call out unclean. Now, if you're interested in leprosy, you, you can go actually to the law, back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 13, verses 45 and, and 46, and, and there's a prescription from God in order to protect the, the Israelite camp from the seriousness and the, the rampant contagion of this disease. There is a, um, there's a quarantine prescribed here, as Morris has said. Let me just give you a flavor uh, of of how difficult life as a leper would have been. This is from the law. Leviticus 13, 45, and 46. 
The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall live alone. And his dwelling shall be outside the camp. So, to put it bluntly, friends, leprosy was physically devastating. Leprosy was socially isolating. And those who had it were devoid of all hope. And yet, this leper, who's full of this disease, like the walking dead, does something in his desperation. He comes to Jesus and cries out, If you will, Jesus, you can make me clean. Note his question is not whether Jesus has the power to do it. He knows he does. He's got faith that Jesus can have. His question is, Jesus, are you willing to do it? Are you willing to heal? Now, <laughs> we can spend a lot of time on that question. But I want us to see here in verse 13 something tremendously profound, I think. Note how Jesus chooses to heal him. Verse 13, what did Jesus do? Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. If you're not like gasping internally, you have, you're, you're missing the point. This guy has leprosy. This is an aggressively contagious disease. This is like a death sentence. He's full of it. And Jesus touches him. Can, can you imagine how utterly astounded, even how aghast the crowd is to see Jesus begin to stretch out His hand toward this leper? This was insane on, on two counts. First, if you were ceremonial, ceremonially clean, which was important for you to be as a faithful Jew, to touch someone who was unclean, was a no-no. You just you didn't do that without yourself becoming unclean. And secondly, perhaps more important in the long run, this disease is so highly contagious to touch this leper runs a very real risk of Jesus contracting the disease. Think about it. <laughs> I mean, just, just common sense. Just, just 2023, pull yourself out of the leprosy dynamic. And just think about this in today's term. If I had a raging case of the flu and we were to make direct contact, would your health transfer to me or would my flu transfer to you? How does this typically work? Now, unlike Luke, I'm no doctor, so let me just try to... <laughs> Let me just try to illustrate this in a way that makes sense to my simple brain. This is from a children's book that uh, my children enjoy. What are you so grumpy about? By Tom Lichtenheld. By the way, this is not depicting leprosy, uh, if you can see the image. It's, it's really just a, a picture of uh, a sibling touching another sibling and the cooties and germs being transferred in commensurate manner. So this isn't exactly what was going on, okay? But you kind of see how this works. The person who is unclean, the person who has the germs, the person who has the disease, it's those things that get transferred, 
Correct? And that's how this thing works. Listen, Jesus is so clean. Jesus is so pure. Jesus is so whole. His pureness, His purity, His his cleanliness is so strong that it overrides any impurity or uncleanness of this devastating disease. Do you see this? This just doesn't happen. That Jesus would reach out and touch the man and His cleanness rules the day. The man, as we've seen before in the case of Simon's mother-in-law, is instantly clean. I mean, he's, he's full of leprosy. I, I, he must have been a ghastly sight. And immediately he goes from pocked and riddled in his skin to whole. What's the point? Well, there's a lot of points. But let's just focus on the big one, the simple one. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is better than your career, than your finances, than your fish. And Jesus is stronger than anything the world would throw at you. Leprosy included. So, there's much more again that we could say about these accounts, but I'd I'd like us to simply wrap this thing up with a simple point of application. And it's this, in your walk with Christ, leave room for adoration. I'll say that one more time. As you're following Christ this week, and and in general, our, our hope, our prayer is that you would purpose to leave room for adoration. We've tried to model that a little bit for you today as Benjamin was was praying, not just asking God for stuff, although that's a good thing to do. He was just praying and, and extolling God for His worthiness. What's it look like for you in your relationship with God, in your time alone with Him, to just bask in His majesty and His worth? Sometimes, friends, some of us are looking for, even as we read the Bible, Martha answers to how we ought to apply the text to our lives. It's good to be a doer of the Word. But you know what's better? To sit at His feet. And so, be a doer of the Word, yes. And one of the ways that we do that here, I think in view of this passage, is just to pause and acknowledge, Jesus, you are better than anything the world would hold out at me. You are stronger, Jesus, than any problem that's facing me today. Jesus is worth leaving everything for, walking away from it all. And there is no problem too tall for him to fix. So we're going we're gonna to end there today. We're going to pause and we're going to pray a song or sing a prayer. However you would say that. 
This one's real old. It's, uh, it's real simple, too. It goes like this, and Ruthann, you can, you can come on up, and as we prepare our hearts to, to sing to the Lord, so, um, it reminds us that the Lord is more precious than anything we can imagine. Lord, you are, the song goes, more precious than silver. God, you're more costly than gold. You're more beautiful than diamonds. And nothing I desire compares with you, Lord. Jesus is better and Jesus is stronger. And sometimes the faithful response to that glorious truth is just to bask in that goodness and adore Him for who He is. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Lord, we are overawed at Your power. We are humbled by Your grace. And we thank You that in the presence of sinners like Peter and like us, You don't cast us out. You don't leave us in our sin. But You... You commission us to do Your work. You made Peter a catcher of men and you've, you've, you've put us about the work here today in Your church of the ministry of reconciliation. God, You've made us Your workmanship created in You for good works which You've prepared in advance. And God, we just, we just want to pause on this chilly March morning and acknowledge that You are good. That You are glorious. Lord, we give, we give glory to Your name this morning. We ascribe worth and value. There's none like You. More precious than silver, God. Nothing we desire compares with You. Would You do that work in our heart, God? Would You stir up our affections for Jesus as we sing? Ruin us for the kingdom, God. May the things of this world grow strangely dim in our lives as, as we pursue Christ in the light of His glory and grace. Do it here, Lord. By Your grace, would You begin building men and women, sanctifying, setting apart children, young boys and girls and, and teenagers for Your glory and joy, Jesus. Do it here. Have mercy and show us, God. Show us your glory and goodness. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.